This morning, we are looking at Galatians. This morning, we are looking at Galatians chapter 5 again, and we're going to begin today in verse 18. And it says, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, this isn't a surprise to anyone in in this room, I'm sure. But Paul had cautioned us against biting and devouring one another. And we are called to unity. And in the Spirit, there is no division, only unity. And so when the text here says that if we live by the Spirit, we will not carry out the desire of the flesh, it's speaking directly to this issue. But this is a principle with broad-ranging application. Before we get to that, however, we find this interesting verse that tells us that all who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. So let's think about that for a moment. The first question that springs to mind for me is how can we know if we're led by the Spirit? I struggled with this for many years. And from my interactions with people, I know that it's an ongoing concern for many people. You know, when I was growing up in the church, I felt like I just didn't know if I ever heard from God. I felt like other people, God talked to them, but He didn't ever seem to really say anything to me. I don't know how to listen to Him. I I couldn't understand His voice. I, I was missing it. It didn't help that the... The second-hand theology that I was getting was telling me that if I didn't behave myself and toe the line after salvation and keep short accounts with God and make sure I confessed all my sins, that I might lose my salvation. That my standing was uncertain with God. These things impacted my ability to trust God. So the question that sprang to mind is, how did I know if I was led by the Spirit? In John 16, 13, the beginning of the verse, Jesus said, When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. And from this we have the assurance of God that Holy Spirit will indeed lead us. Additionally, in Romans 8, verse 9, the first part of that verse, we learn that we are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in us. So seeing that we are in the Spirit if He lives in us, and that since that's true, we can be certain that He will do as Jesus said He would do and guide us, The only remaining question is how that we can actually know that He is in us. Now, you know, Romans 8 is such a victorious passage for believers. But Romans 8 used to scare me because I kept reading all those if statements about if the Spirit is in you. So not only was I unsure whether He was leading me, I was unsure whether He was even in me. This is, what, this is the danger of religion. Because religion makes it seem like we have to perform and measure up in order to know that He's in us or in order to be sure that He's in us or that we are in Him. 
And that is not the case. The criteria is believing. Believing God. Saying the same thing as Him. Yes, I was a sinner. I've sinned. And my only hope of righteousness is Jesus Christ. If you have believed God and put your faith in Him, through faith in the Lord Jesus, you can be certain that Holy Spirit is in you. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 makes this very clear. It says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of the promise who is the first installment of our inheritance in regard to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. With the sure knowledge that everyone who has put their faith in Christ is being led by the Spirit, we can now turn our attention to the second question raised by Paul's statement, that those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. In Acts chapter 13, 38 and 39, Peter eloquently helps us with this question. He said, Therefore let it be known to you, brothers, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. That's good news. As Paul told the Galatians, this is freedom from the curse of the law. For us, it is freedom from meritorious conduct as an attempt to earn salvation and justification before God. Paul put it this way in Romans 8.2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Romans 7, 4 through 6 summarizes what happened very well. It says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in regard to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh... The sinful passions which were brought to light by the law were at work in the parts of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not oldness of the letter. 
we serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Here again we see that we were in the flesh before we believed. But our old self was put to death so that we could be joined with Christ and bear good spiritual fruit. And we'll get to that topic shortly. Moreover, we see that we have been released from the law because we've died to it. And so we serve God by willingly following the Spirit who is leading us and no longer being enslaved to the introspection resulting from fleshly attempts to merit righteousness. We who have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus are led by the Spirit and are no longer under the law. Whether that law is the one handed down by Moses or simply the law of sin and death. As Jesus said in John 13, 34, I am giving you a new commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. The only law we have is to believe God and love one another. And that law is not burdensome. And sometimes we might hear somebody say, well, I find it hard to love other people. Yes, if you're trying to do it yourself. But here's the thing. God's love is poured all over our new heart. It's His love that we're spreading. Galatians 5 19 to 21 reads this way. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that sounds pretty scary. It's important that we understand this text properly. This is not a list of especially heinous sins. Neither is it a checklist for us to use as a guide in calling out the horrendous sins of others. Sin is sin. If you have missed the mark, the mark has been missed. These are examples of the sort of lifestyle that we can expect to see in the world without God. This is a list containing things that are unloving and ungodly. And those who are in the flesh live this way. 
They practice lawlessness. They work iniquity. They do evil. That's what happened at the fall. Sin entered the world and death through sin. Now the word translated practice in this passage, and the King James has do such things, is a present active participle in the nominative case in Greek. That's just for Jim, because I know he's a Greek geek. <laughs> Not really, it's for all of us. It's a present active participle in the nominative case in Greek. This indicates that this action is continuous, repeated, and going on at the same time as these people being in the flesh and not inheriting the kingdom. The passage is clear that such people will not inherit the kingdom. And that, and that it is clear in that way, it should give us, those of us in Christ, great comfort since we know that all who are in Christ will inherit the kingdom, and nothing can change that. Therefore, knowing this, we can be sure that believers who sometimes, and maybe even often, fail to behave in godly ways, are not in view here. Rather, the text is referring to those who have not place their faith in the Lord Jesus, and who practice and live their lives according to the flesh in which they live. These remain separated from the source of life and are therefore dead in their sins. But lest we be prideful about our wonderful position as holy children of God, which we are, Ephesians 2, 1-3 tells us, that we were once in the same state of separation. The passage says, And you were dead in your offenses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, among them we too all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. Do you see that? We were by nature children's children of wrath, sons of disobedience, daughters of disobedience. Why was that important by nature? Because we've been reborn. This is why God said you must be born of the Spirit that changed your nature. Now you partake in the divine nature. That doesn't make you God. It just means you and He are together. You are one spirit with Him. You are in Him and He is in you. And that's as close as it gets. The result of our redemption is that we come to have a heart of compassion for those who remain in bondage to the power of sin. Doesn't it just break your heart? Think about your family members who aren't saved, who, aren't, who don't believe. 
Doesn't that break your heart? That's compassion. That comes from God. We can expect this response because it is a primary trait expressed by the Lord Jesus while He was on earth. Compassion. Since we are born of God, we find this sort of fruit being produced in us. Galatians 5, 22-23, But the fruit of the Spirit that's being produced in us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Many express confusion about spiritual fruit. Observing attitudes and actions they would prefer were not part of their conduct, they wonder whether they may somehow have missed out on the fruit distribution or whether perhaps they need to buckle down and work harder at self-flagellation and spiritual disciplines so they'll bear fruit. Pruning and all that. But 2 Peter 1.4 has something to say on the matter. It reads, Through these, it's talking about the great promises of God, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world on account of lust. We're told that as many as the promises of God are, in Him, that is Christ, they are yes. Find that in 2 Corinthians 1.20. God's promises are many. He promised to provide the Lamb, a Savior, who would give us a way to acceptance by Him, and that we would inherit eternal life. He promised that those who believe would be reborn, born of His Spirit, and that His Spirit would indwell His children. And we can count on all these promises because we have been given the Holy Spirit as a deposit. 1 Corinthians 2.12 helps us see this. It says, Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. You have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. Because of this, we share in the divine nature. This is not an inheritance by which we become deity. It's an inheritance of godliness. His traits become evident in us because we inherit them from Him. The fruit of the Spirit is godliness. Don't make the mistake of limiting, limiting it to that list of nine. There's lots of other examples. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3 illuminates this, saying, In the last days God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things 
through whom also he made the world. And he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. The apostle, Jesus is the exemplar of our knowledge of God and our understanding of what we can expect that we have inherited from Father through spiritual rebirth. In other words, when we look at Jesus and see what his traits were as he walked the earth and how he was and, and who he was, we can expect those kinds of godly attitudes and actions in our own lives because that's what Spirit is working us toward, moving us toward, and has called us to. Consequently, compassion, though it's not in the list of nine, is fruit of the Spirit. It was one of the primary traits expressed by Christ. We can expect whatever is true of the Lord Jesus is good and godly. The Apostle John pointed this out in 1 John 4, 1 through 3, where he said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they be from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know that the Spirit of by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and now it is already in the world. Do you see it? We can know what is from God and what is not by comparing what we see, hear, feel, and think to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the exact representation of the nature of God. And we share in that nature. We can be sure that anything that is not consistent with the character of the Lord Jesus is not of God. Additionally, we can expect that this godly character and these godly traits are a part of us from the moment of rebirth. Just as we inherit the traits of our earthly parents, the traits we inherit from our Heavenly Father are more fully expressed as we mature in Him. At age 65, I find myself having attitudes and behaviors like my earthly parents much more than I did at age 25. And so it is with us in Christ. Galatians 5, 24 through 26. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh along with its passions and desires. You did that. Well, He did it in you. If we live by the Spirit, let's follow the Spirit as well. Let's not become boastful, challenging one another, envying each other. When this passage tells us that those who belong to Christ crucified the flesh, it's telling us of an event 
that took place in the past. This particular verb is active, and it's in the third person indicative. And that tells us that this action was done completely. It was done as a unit by the subject of the sentence. In this case, those who belong to Christ. We know from the balance of Scripture and from the knowledge of crucifixion as a means of execution that it is impossible for us to have crucified ourselves. Did you ever think about that? You can't do it. At best, you could get one hand nailed up. Therefore, it is Christ who crucified our flesh, just as we read in Romans 6, 6, where we're told that our old self was crucified with Him. Our flesh, having been factually and unchangeably crucified in this way, we now live by the Spirit of God. As Romans 6 tells us, we have been raised with Him to new life. Since this is the truth about us, we are exhorted to follow the Spirit. I don't know about you, but I'm a lot like sheep. Sometimes I kind of wander off. There's some really pretty grass over there I think I need to eat. I don't always stick to the plan. But he has a rod and a staff and he has his loving, kind, quiet voice and he draws me back. Earlier in our study, we read that if we walk or live by the Spirit, we will not carry out the desire of the flesh. This is true, because as we saw, as we studied the verses preceding these, we inherited godly traits and participate in Father's nature through our spiritual rebirth. His traits are inherent within us. And He works within us as we grow in grace and the knowledge of Him to give us the desire and the ability to do godly things. You know, I used to think, and I was taught as a young person, that I needed to separate myself from the world. Come apart from them and be ye separate. I needed to be a peculiar person, unique, not like everybody else. And you know, you can work hard at that, and you can try to do it by the way you dress, by the way you speak, by what you do or don't participate in. But all of that is smoke and mirrors. That's not what it's talking about. You are separate. You are a citizen of the kingdom. And the longer I've known Christ, the more separated I feel. And yet... I continue to interact with people in this world. I conduct myself according to the, the structures and methods in this world in the hope 
that some will hear the gospel and change their minds. But I'm more and more at peace in this world because more and more I realize the truth that my citizenship is not here. And this isn't really what it's all about. All this glorious truth could give us a false sense of superiority. This is a very real danger and it has caused many to distrust and malign Christians as being condescending or acting as though they were better than others. You know, holier than thou. We all have heard about that. This section of the Apostles' letter ends with this caution. We must take care not to become boastful. We must be careful not to pick fights with people over theological and doctrinal differences. These things are not productive. They lead to division and broken relationships, and these things do not reflect the character of the Lord Jesus. And so we know that they do not come from Him. Finally, we are also not to envy one another. Now, I find this an interesting contrast. On the one hand, we're warned not to be prideful, and on the other hand, we're cautioned not to envy. Envy is longing for what others have. So we are neither to pridefully brag about what we have, nor are we to diminish ourselves by considering what others have or appear to have better, more important, or greater than what we have. We are each important parts of the body of Christ. We all serve different roles and have different purposes. But none of us are unnecessary. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is unity. And all the other godly characteristics found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let religion divide people. Don't let it divide you. Remember its relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about what you know. It's about who you know. Father, we are stunned by your word. And to, to use the phrasing of my friend Frank Friedman, Father, we are stunned by grace. The ramifications of the truth of the gospel are overwhelming. Thank you for this trip we're taking through Galatians so that we get clearly fixed in our minds the difference between religion, its rules, its rites, its rituals, its requirements, and relationship with you and the rewards and the rest 
that that brings. Father, we want to know you more. We want to know you more personally. We want to know you more intimately. We want to know you in every way possible. We pray this morning that as we continue and as we begin to close our study in Galatians that you would drive these points home to us so that when we begin to study Revelation, we're ready for the incredible glory that it presents to us and the incredible warnings that it presents to the world. We love you, Lord, because you loved us. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for your incredible love, your tender mercy, and your enormous grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.